The Athletic. If I'm being honest, I don't think we actually played that well. Did they have more possession or something? Yeah, yeah. they did, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm 36% guessing. possession for you 36. guys. 36? Yeah. Lowest under the manager's past us, Pep Guardiola, in his time at the club. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell, comforted by the presence today of Michael Cox, of Mark Carey and of Liam Tharm. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. All well? <laughs> yeah, good. All the better for hearing that. Very cheery greeting from both my colleagues. Uh, today's topic I'm really excited about. It came from something we noted in an episode a few weeks back, and we've expanded it now into a, a full conversation. It's about a phrase that we've all heard many times over the years. Generally, I'd say a pundit talking on TV after a, a top team has put in a performance that maybe didn't scream dominance, but ended with three points. The old cliche, the sign of a good team is winning without playing well. I'm going to ask the guys, is this mythical? Is it a truism? Let's see what comes out in the wash. Uh, Michael, come to you first. Winning without playing well, we need to basically nail down the actual phrase. Is it winning without playing well, the sign of a good team? Is it the sign of champions? I think I've heard before as well. Yeah, I mentioned this in an article once about a year ago. Uh, said, yeah, the, the, the old cliche is, you know, the sign of a good team is winning without playing well. And someone in the comments insisted it was actually the sign of champions. Right. Is, does it make a difference? I, I guess it does. There is a difference between a good team and champions. But I think the sentiment is the same. And when do people use this phrase? What, what, when this is being trotted out, what do people mean by it? Well, I guess by definition, it has to be a team that you kind of already think are good, right? I mean, when when Derby County won one game all season in 2007-8, a doubt after that, they went, well, they didn't play well, but they did win. So this is clearly the sign of a good Derby County side. But I mean, I kind of understand the logic for it. It's kind of like they didn't even need to play well. That You know, they can play in third gear and still get past teams. And I think there's a kind of hint of when they actually play well, they will be spectacular. So we need to try and work out if there are any inherent characteristics of these teams. Michael, does it does it to you speak about a certain style of team? Is there a is there a tactical element to this? Is it a psychological thing about team spirit? Where where do you think we should start here trying to unpack what defines a team a good team that wins without playing well? Well, I think generally champions, the kind of level of champions is not really about your ceiling. It doesn't really matter how great you can be. It doesn't matter whether you win games 4-0 or 6-0. What matters is you not having any off days, really. And so I think if you do have a, a game where you're not playing well and you can grind it out, I think that is a quality to have. And if you are a team, you can consistently do that. That's maybe more conducive to winning a title than a side who is on one week and off the next week, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. The old cliche of either losses into draws or sort of draws into wins. Um, particularly, I think I've seen that with sort of promotion chasing teams where they often have to play more games in a season and that can be um, an even bigger difference. But I think there's a broader discussion really about what playing well is, quote unquote, and that I think we've got to this very centralised idea in, in the English game where it's now about sort of having organised possession football. It's about controlling the game with the ball, um, about pressing high, about playing lots of short, intricate passes, effectively the sort of style that 
I was told was the Spanish way of playing um, when sort of I, I was growing up and having sort of moved away from that, I think from the academy level now to both domestically across the Premier League, I think that's, you know, most of the teams are trying to do a variant of that. We've spoken about some of the more outlying styles. Um, and I think Spain are now, as a national team, a great example of this because they've, you know, gone out without reaching the final of the last two um, major tournaments. Uh, Luis Enrique had a very specific style of, of playing it. And ironically, they're the team that many people would say, did the opposite of this, have played well and didn't really win mm. what they should have done. Um, they'd one shot on target uh, in that game against Morocco from 13 shots and uh, Morocco had more shots on target than them despite Spain having 77% possession. And after they lost to Scotland recently, Rodri came out and spoke and was basically speaking down on Scotland's side of play and saying, you know, we're playing this really good way and this idea now that doing it in an organised possession sense for some teams, the, the style of the identity is more important than just the mm. result itself. So that for me is fascinating. To pick up on that, I think there's there's different versions of playing well, to your point, Liam. And I think that how we define it as not playing well, but still winning is how much of a deviation there is from the the performance to the, the outcome as well. So Liverpool's version of playing well stylistically was very different from Manchester City's. But I think that's where the drop-off would be considered to be not playing well if Liverpool were not implementing that the style that they typically would, which is high transition, etc., mm. um, and far more intensity, whereas Manchester City's version wouldn't necessarily be that. It would be how much or how little they dominate the ball. So I think it's, relative, it's tough because it's relative to the specific team rather than necessarily a general team having, having played well. I think Brentford are a perfect example of this. Who have been very good last season, even better this season. Never won a Premier League game with majority share of possession. And they have a very specific sort of defensive style that I think many teams would consider as this isn't a way that we want to play. But as you say, it's effectively about having a game plan. And I think we've almost got to this point where people have a certain way they want to see the game played and they're then evaluating teams based on how they want to watch them play not what the team are going to say oh, okay this is our style obviously they're not going to openly say we want to play xyz and um, but i think we can get a general grasp of we see teams with different styles in different ways trying to achieve their game plan uh, and that's really what i think playing well is is how well can you achieve your game plan because for a certain game that might not necessarily be winning it or it might be playing in a certain way nullifying certain opposition players maximizing strengths it, it's really you know dependable on the situation and the circumstances I might be taking a slight left turn here, but the a phrase that's used more on the continent is that they say that they suffered a lot and the manager in a post-match interview will say that we had to suffer for long periods, but ultimately we got the result or whatever. I don't know if that is just something which I know that like Xavi would say at Barcelona. It's, I think, Liam, you, you and I spoke about this, I think, quite common in Spain. Does that kind of also constitute not playing well, but kind of having to go through a bit of a tricky period, weather a storm, but yeah. ultimately still come out with a... 1-0 win, a 2-1 win or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I must admit, part of how I feel when I think about this phrase and when we might feel it is partly to do with possession. When a team that's, let's say, a title contender is playing against a team in the bottom half of the Premier League, Liam sort of alluded to it, there's a certain way that we think these games play out. There's a certain dominance with the ball that we expect the, the favourite to have. So in my head, this scenario often comes around when we don't see that. And it's a little jarring. Like, well, that team, they really didn't, didn't dominate the ball nearly as much as we thought. So it comes back, Michael, to things not looking the way that maybe it's expected to look, but being able to handle those situations. And, and that strikes me as something psychological almost. Okay, we're under the cosh here. It's not going the way that we planned. It's probably not going the way that we've trained for and planned for all week but we're still going to find a way here. We're still going to 
do what we need to do in this situation. Yeah, I think you're right about it being something that isn't planned. So you wouldn't say it for like Mourinho's first Chelsea team, for example, because they were a counter-attacking side. They were accustomed to playing without the ball. That was their game plan. Do you think everyone knew that at the time, though? Or was that unusual at its time, that the way that they played? Do you think the punditry around the time was, well, we know this is how they play, so don't worry too much if it doesn't look very title-winning? I think it probably was, yeah. I mean, there were a few different phases of that Chelsea team, I think. At times, they were a bit more entertaining. I think that people need to realise that that is just ways of winning different types of games of what win you titles, that there's going to be games where um, you're going to need to defend deeper at times. Napoli are a fantastic case study for this when you look at perhaps their style tweaks between the Champions League where they've not been as ball dominant compared to in, in Serie A where they've been one of the most expansive teams in the league. But I think Kim Min-Jai, their, their primary centre-back, he's in the top five or six for clearances, which you know, you'd know you be absolutely amazed if you ever saw Manchester City centre-back in the top 10 of the Premier League for, for clearances. But I think now... Being adaptable and being able to adjust, especially as there's there's more subs now, um, and across wider competitions, because obviously a lot of these top teams are playing not just league football, but also trying to challenge in cups and in European competition. That you need that adaptability in order to go through those periods and to to suffer in those games. And I, I think the interesting point about the use of the terminology, not to go too in depth to it, is it doesn't seem to be a problem in how they convey it. They're sort of saying that's okay. That's part of what we have to do is is suffering. Like it's not dangerous. It's not necessarily problematic. And um, we don't, as we've said, we don't set out to achieve that, but we accept that that's going to happen in times, and we just need to get through that and deal with it and then recover. I think the biggest or the best example of that at the team level, more probably in knockout football um, in the past 12 months or so has been Real Madrid. Um, and I know that Michael did a piece off the back of El Clasico yesterday. I watched that game and for the first half, I mean, they were already 1-0 down in the Copa del Rey against Barcelona on, on aggregate. The first half, Barcelona, I think, had 59% of the possession. They were dominating the game. Uh, and Real Madrid, just they were just so adept at knowing, okay, we are quote unquote suffering here. We're going to you know, have our backs against the wall a little bit. And they scored at the end of the first half and went on to, to win the game 4-0. And they were just a perfect example of they don't need to dominate the whole game. They dominated in spells. They certainly came into it more in the second half when obviously the scoreline had changed and the whole um, the game style had changed at that point. But you think about last season, the Champions League as well. They were what was it in the, the 89th minute? I think they were 1-0 down on aggregate or, you know, they were one goal behind on aggregate against Manchester City, scored three goals in about 10 minutes. Um, what was the other one? They PSG, they were they were down, they scored, a, I think Karen Benzema scored a 17-minute hat-trick. Liverpool in the final, Liverpool arguably, but I think Liverpool did dominate that game. Real Madrid win 1-0. So they are just, I think, in, the, in recent history and in general, um, the perfect example of teams who are happy, comfortable to, to suffer. They have the experience in the squad to know that they've got moments players. I've got two things off the back of that. The first one is just, I think France are a great international version of, of sort of Real in that regard that um, they often don't control periods of games, often sit off defensively. We've spoken obviously about Mbappe and a general sort of team um, idea where they don't do a lot of intense defending, which is maybe also a theme of international football. But you look at the fact they've they've reached a Nations League final, the last two World Cup finals. Um, you know, they've reached a Euros final under Deschamps as well. Um without necessarily always going through and being the best team. I know, I know Coxie's written before about, you know, we often overestimate the quality that's needed to win trophies and, and knock out football. Um, and I guess my question to, to you guys at the back of that would be, do we almost need to start viewing it and analysing it differently to how we look at league football? And I think about the comparisons to maybe different formats of cricket in that regard, where you have to play them in different ways because you, you're almost not playing in a way that's designed to be sustainable. You need to win or not lose games um, in knockout football. You don't necessarily 
necessary need to put in performances that you can go and do every week and, and repeat them and when like as you say aggregate scores come in things get different because if you're leading from the first leg you might you know be more passive etc but it's a very specific way that probably doesn't translate into league football and I just wonder what you you think off the back of that. Yeah, I think it's something we've spoken about before, isn't it, with Pep Guardiola of how he likes to exert dominance in terms of possession and that works really well in the league because more often than not, you will be the, the dominant team who comes out on top. I think that was maybe a little bit of his downfall in, in cup competitions, certainly in the Champions League, where you come up against a transitional side and you can get picked apart. And then, as you say, it's a one-off game and that that's you out of the competition. So i certainly say that would definitely ring true. I think that was why Liverpool had a lot of success historically under Jurgen Klopp in terms of their ability in transition to just be all action and it would blow the team away in a one-off game certainly in the knockouts and that's why they've had a lot of success in um, knockouts but not necessarily always consistently in the the league um, so I'd say, I'd say that tallies passes the eye test it strikes me that quite a, possibly the most difficult part of this conversation is we take hypothetically take a team that has won a couple of games in the last few in which this phrase would apply. You know, they suffered, they weren't at their best, but they won. There's now a lot more that we look at in terms of performance analysis over time that is used to be predictive. So halfway through a season, you may be able to look at performance levels and underlying numbers, and you may think that that will be more predictive for the second half of the season than just the pure results, the points tally that they have at that point. So the question is, for a hypothetical team that's in this scenario, working out whether it's fair to say, well, maybe they've just got it. They've got this sign of a good team that can suffer, get through it and win games. Or actually, I'm a bit concerned about this team in the long term because I'm not sure they're actually playing very well. Yeah, I mean, to sort of flip it on its head, I think we've spoken about this before in terms of overperformance against expected goals. And you could look at it as from one of two ways. You could say that eventually, yeah, that they will regress to the mean um, and eventually it will catch up with them. Or I thought that was going to be a bigger part of the conversation so far, I'll be honest. Because it strikes me that a part of this is like, I suspect that many of its uses in history have been pundits in a situation where they are reacting to an outcome, a win, they can't say the performance was great because they know it wasn't great. So they're trying to almost justify or, or retrofit a narrative based on the outcome more than anything else. Yeah, I do think it is, it's narrative based, certainly. I think that at the season level, rare occasions, but you can still have it at the season level where a team does overperform and they should their performances suggest that they shouldn't necessarily be winning certain games. But a season in the grand scheme of things from a data perspective is still quite a small sample to go from. And if you can overperform I think Liam you might have mentioned this a few weeks ago if you can overperform um it's also a sign of a, a team who is resilient who is able to do these things and it's not we shouldn't use it as a stick to beat teams with we should use it as a, as a positive to say um yeah they're they're breaking the models quote unquote the statistical models um and in the short space of time of a season if you can do that then you, you are still deserved winners an athlete in athletics will have a season's best and sort of a, a personal best and these unsustainable levels of performance that they're trying to reach when it comes to major competitions to an Olympics in particular is this is what teams want when they get through the latter stages of you know we're now coming into the Champions League quarterfinals that you don't want to be trying to reach a level of performance that you can do for 30 games in a season you want this to be your best three or four games of a season which means if you don't create many chances fine that's not necessarily a problem because you don't necessarily need to as long as you keep things tight defensively but 
it's where, and I really like expected goals as a metric before anyone thinks I, I think otherwise, I'm all for it, but it's not designed to be used in that such a small, um, you know, in such a small manner. And I've seen in the Bundesliga coverage that after a goal is scored, they'll put up the, the goal probability, which I just assume is XG put into percentage mm. format. And it's not the point of the statistic. Mm. And I think it then gets really reductionist and overlooks for what are me the two most important skills in football which are being able to score a goal and the technique that's required within that and players sort of get branded as lucky which they're not they're elite elite athletes someone like Son Heung-min who is frequently I know he hasn't this season but as frequently ever performed his expected goals is because he trained both of his feet for 10-15 years with with his father um, and the same on the flip side for shot stopping that uh, we spoke about the, the Champions League final Thibaut Courtois made a record nine saves I think that should be celebrated I think reducing it to a game of just chance creation doesn't work necessarily as your pure sort of overall analysis in that there is value and a successful team needs to because they will everyone will have games where you don't make you don't make many chances but then winning both the boxes when you don't win the bit in the middle that's also a way to win a game mm. of football and I think that's why many coaches now are like yeah okay fine we have to do that sometimes one of the early strengths of expected goals was to try and avoid pure outcome bias when it comes to just looking at results and the score lines but it's almost brought in a, another outcome bias of its own now where there's sometimes just you just looking at the xg instead of the score line can cause problems on that front yeah i do think saying you know we won the xg uh, to liam's point on a single game basis is quite risky um i think it is a very noisy stat across a, a single game it can be you know just like any statistic it can be a useful tool to inform your opinion but don't use it kind of as a crutch to to base your conclusions from um, i think from like a data perspective to maybe analyze the game if we are going to use it on a single game basis for expected goals i'd probably say that there's two versions of everything we've spoken about quote unquote winning without playing well which can influence things from a data viewpoint i'd say that there's either the the smash and grab win where the opposition dominates, whether that is in possession, in shots, in XG, but they just simply can't convert. They're missing all their chances. I think it happened with Chelsea and Liverpool earlier this week. Can't convert. Um, and then the your team has a fairly average value chance and then they convert that opportunity. You might lose the XG battle in that regard, but you come out with the win because you've just converted your single chance. Smash and grab win. I think the second one is kind of grinding it out win, which I think you alluded to before, Ali, which is can look very different by the numbers in terms of still having a quote-unquote winning without playing well. But in this case, your team might dominate possession. It might be up against a, a minnow of a team. It might be up against a low block, forced into a lot of low-value chances, shooting from distance, failing to break down that block and get in behind. So you could still think, okay, well, we're not playing well here. We're not able to break them down but you might still then convert a chance from a corner or from a scrappy goal and still win that way. The XG looks very different there. Both are kind of under the umbrella of a winning without playing well, but it can look ultimately very, very different from a data perspective as well. Yeah, I think in my head, this probably applies better in the latter scenario, not the scenario where you've basically been under the cost, you've been getting battered all game, which frankly doesn't happen very often for the sorts of teams that would be you know, given this. Uh, this this sort of praise or this line it, it is that other one it's it's we felt a bit off it and we struggled with what we came up against but we just about got it right mm. 
gonna gonna prove Mark right here because it's a great example from uh, the Manchester United Brentford game last night where Brentford defended in a pretty deep five three two, um, kept trying to deny United all the space. Uh, they kept being forced down the sides and they were playing with sort of Rashford at number nine who wasn't really being fixed. He was roaming a lot and. They got an awful lot of corners. They scored the only goal from the game off the second phase of a corner. But it was interesting to see sort of post-match when you, you look at the stats that Brentford had one chance, a one-on-one um, against the hair, which they missed. United scored their one big chance of the second phase of that corner. So they had 65% possession, had 18 shots to Brentford, six. Uh, but 10 of their shots came from outside the box, eight were inside. Um, and the XG wasn't uh, sort of a million miles in terms of a difference. So you look at that and go, oh, you've had all the ball and not really broken them down at all. But Ten Hag was quite positive. You described them as a very tough opponent when you see the results against top teams it's very difficult to create chances against them and we created something I think we almost overestimate what a good performance is sometimes mm-hmm. managers and I guess why that would annoy people because you go oh, if I expected a, an 8-9 out of 10 and they're satisfied with a 7 that's just going to be a discrepancy but um, that that to me is yeah again fascinating and that's where I, I think it relates to what I said before in terms of that deviation from the manager's perspective of where you are or where you've been versus where the, the manager wants them to be. But I think kind of going a little bit deeper beyond XG alone, that's kind of why I like the match momentum charts after a game. You see them often on on the Optra Analyst. I know that um, John Muller of, of our parish has, has created a, a visual that's very similar, um, where basically what this does is look at each team's maximum probability during every three-minute period in a match and the difference between the team's scoring chances within that period. So essentially, the more bars that you have within the chart across the 90-minute period, the more dominant you have been within the game in both boxes. So I think it's always a nice way of just showing the yeah, graphically and visually when there's been kind of more domination rather than just saying that, yeah, we won the that XG battle. In particular with an example where a team maybe scored a penalty mm. or scored a tap-in. And that can actually overpower almost everything else that happened in the game if you just look at the expected goals number after 90 minutes. But in that sense, those momentum graphs, of course, that would be reflected in that portion of the game, but you may be able to get a larger overview of, of the, yeah, the, the quieter parts of the game shall we say the concept of momentum in football is something i i find fascinating because i had a lecture on this last year whilst i was still studying and we sort of compared it to basketball which i know ali will know about but the way they often sort of measure momentum there can be done directly through scoring points because scoring happens simply more frequently um and i just it's really strange in football i think because often once teams score they will then not be as attacking. I think for the first, or so let's say five, 10 minutes afterwards, teams tend to, unless they're genuinely chasing a game, but for the most part, you work to score and you sort of uh, sit back a bit more, you're a bit more conservative, you know, you defend what you've got sort of thing. But that almost then within the momentum part of it needs you to keep attacking, but not actually score. So to keep getting in the shooting positions or keep getting into position box, but not get the goal that you want. And it's almost counterproductive that to keep having momentum, you need to not get the thing that momentum is trying to achieve because you then score. And for most teams, you're going to go, fine, right, we've, we've got the goal now, we can sit back or, you know, we don't need to rush and panic as much. It's, um, I think it's a really valuable way to try and measure, as you say, Mark, a, a part of the game that looks at the flows and the changes but I think it's just it's almost inherently really difficult to look at and measure again because football is just such a low scoring sport that the thing that you want then is going to happen so infrequently that you're looking at everything else but everything else ties back into the goal and then it's like well now what do we look at sort of thing underlying numbers that's what you want (laughs) Uh, Michael are there any teams either current or I'd like to hear about some maybe from from past decades that to you most encompass this phrase when you hear winning without playing well the sign of a good team who do you think had that said most about them I think of Ferguson's Manchester United and maybe I think of that because I've seen them win a title more than I've seen any other team win a title but they did have a real ability to grind it out 
and get wins in quite unglamorous fashion. And I think in general, when it was Ferguson's Manchester United against uh, Wenger's Arsenal, Arsenal would play like the best football. Like Their ceiling would be the highest. They'd play some incredible stuff, but they'd also have massive off days. And I think Manchester United, when they weren't playing well, they could still win. And so I think that phrase, certainly in relation to that team, probably made sense. I think that was probably what I was expecting. Any any more recently, Liam, that spring to mind for you? The Lionesses, the England women's team, were fantastic at the Euros. And I won't go into depth because you guys have covered that in, in many pods and many pieces. So for people that want, um, and quite fortunately, I think you guys had a lot of episodes during the tournament, during the stages. So I'd encourage go back because there's four or five hours there where you can listen to. I think every podcast you were saying, Serena Regan's going to change the squad. Um, and, you know, kept, kept the same starting 11 the whole way through. He's like, De- definitely this time, definitely this time. Um, but yeah, having their sort of same core side and same key subs and not starting games fantastically and then blowing multiple teams out the water. Um, I think they're a great example internationally and domestically or in sort of European competition. I thought Eintracht Frankfurt were fantastic in their Europa League run. Quite a good sort of organised 5 for one mid-block. Uh, very, very good crossing side. Um, very good counter-attacking side. They had more games where they had a minority share of possession than they had the majority share conceded just once in 11 of their 13 games so I think just being so solid defensively um, and that then sort of transpired into the final and how they won that which they then went and won mm. on penalties and had a goalkeeper that was the best in the tournament for for post shot XG and additional goals prevented so all the elements I think that you want in a um, tournament winning team feel like the aspect of this that applies to knockout tournaments and competition football is quite different to what we're talking about in terms of league football so where does the Champions League come into that in, well, in the sense that that's club football but it's also knockout football yeah I, I, I don't think it's hugely applies to the conversation like it, it strikes me that this has probably almost never been said about Manchester City in the last few years because when they are let's say under their average performance level they're probably still exerting a level of possession and, dare I say it, shot-based dominance on the opposition. Yeah, I think with the Manchester United example, it's because they were so good at coming from behind or, as Liam said before, turning draws into wins. Whereas Manchester City, again, off the top of my head, it feels like they are always the ones to to score first. And at very worst, they'll be drawing. There's not too many occasions where they go behind. Of course, they do lose the odd game. But if, if ever they do go behind, it's early on and it's almost like a, how dare you do that? Now you've awoken the beast and then they'll probably just go two goals up in the first half or something. But I think in every league campaign, there's never going to be a situation where a team blows the opposition out of the water in every game. So, you know, off the top of my head, you've got the Vincent Company goal for Manchester City against Leicester, where he put it top bins when he could have easily drawn that game, I think. Was it the 17-18 season that Sterling scored that curler in like the last minute against Southampton? There's there's occasions throughout each season, each title-winning season, where the the team is about to draw, is about to drop points, and they go and kind of score a goal that maybe they didn't deserve to or could have easily not scored a, a low-value chance. So I'm getting a new episode idea forming about the the concept of, and I think Coxie's gonna hate the use of this word, the concept of clutch plays. Yes. yes. Uh and how much we can, you know, how random they are or otherwise in, in football. And we know that they're quite important. 
it's interesting Ali, that you said about City and not tending to to do do the thing of winning when not playing well. Because I think Arsenal was the one example in recent memory where they have done that, where they didn't have a lot of possession. There's that great clip post match where Jack Grealish is surprised to hear the amount of possession they've had um, and the goals that they scored. The first one is off you know a real big defensive error. It's a great finish, but mm-hmm. comes about for defensive error. Um, there's a high turnover, I think, for um, for the second one. So maybe if that's a part of their game, they can start to really add in because they've not been necessarily at their their best um, this season. I remember going back through Mark's piece from August where he looked at basically sort of seeing after Liverpool's bad start if their title run was was already over and I think it was that the title winning team has never lost more than six games in a season since 2000 so as we were saying about I think teams can often overlook the value of draws at times. Um, Brentford and Newcastle are both right up in the league this season because they've drawn a lot. They're not quite quite up at the top, but Newcastle are looking at Champions League for the first time in a long time. Brentford obviously pushing for um, Europe for the first time. So I think even sort of slightly off from purely just the title winning teams, that can also have big repercussions for teams that are chasing real good top half finishers. I think I felt coming into this that there might be a desire to be sort of myth busting here. I think I felt probably because I feel like you used to hear this a lot in previous decades that this might be a bit of old you know a bit of an old school cliche sort of as i've suggested maybe kind of retrofitting a narrative to a match's outcome but it strikes me michael actually having discussed it that we broadly as a collective think there is validity to the phrase there's there's substance to it yeah, I think it kind of goes back to the debate about what the phrase is, about whether it's a sign of a good team or the sign of champions. So, for example, a, a good example I can think of of uh, a game where a side played badly and won was Arsenal away at Leeds earlier this year in about October on a Sunday. I remember because I was there and there was a floodlight failure or a power cut and it got delayed by about an hour. And Arsenal were terrible that day. Like they didn't create anything. Saka scored a goal out of nothing. Leeds missed a penalty. They missed a few chances. They thought they had a penalty in the last minute that then got overturned. Like Arsenal were really bad. Probably the worst I've seen them play this year. I don't think you can look at them winning that and think that's the sign of a good side because they weren't a good side. But can you say it's the sign of champions? We kind of can because they've got three points they didn't really deserve. And I don't think there's a, you know this whole things even themselves out over the course of the season. I mean, we know they might not. I think it's just a truism. I think basically the point we're making is they've done well to get three points from that. On another day, they might have got zero points and therefore they're going to be three points higher up the table than they might have been. I, I almost think it might be as simple as that when you think about it. Okay. Well, I guess to finish then, the the really difficult question that I want to ask you guys is can we try and think about these sorts of teams and isolate some similar characteristics or some parts of these teams that we think makes them more likely to win games when not at their best versus a team that doesn't win those games because Lord knows lots of teams don't win those games and don't end up as champions. So it could be anything in in the tactics, anything in the makeup of the squad or the type of manager to support this idea, Liam, that it's more by design than just pure luck and, and outcome. Yeah, I was intrigued when I did the research is that Arsenal have had the most goals slash assists by substitutes in the league this season, which is 14 altogether. And of course, I remember Coxie was there recently when Reese Nelson scored um, the winner against Bournemouth. And I think having that depth now is even more one important and two just probably necessary by this point because you're going to be able to change five players in the game and um, I guess that will then require a different type of tactician as a manager to be reactive and maybe a bit more perceptive and um, maybe be more flexible and be prepared to be sort of open-minded and adapt to the games because there'll probably be a period 
effectively, I think if most teams, I'm going to generalize and make subs around the 60th minute, you've kind of got an hour of a match, then maybe a 15, 20 minute period where things are in a massive state of flux because you could have half of the outfielders that are possibly um, sort of changing over and then sort of a, a final end game. On that, Arsenal have scored the joint most, uh, conceded the joint fewest goals in the last 15 minutes of game. So mm. I think just impacting games late. And of course, that's interesting because the big notion around them this season has been they started games really quickly, started both halves, often with, with early goals. But I think that is quite literally how you turn draws into wins and losses into draws because you're going to impact games when teams haven't got a chance to respond against you because there's just no time left. I think to, to answer your question as well, Ali, it might be a little bit reductionist in the answer, but just having really, really good finishes is, is going to be key in terms of that. Well, I mean, you spoke about that clutch before, right? Someone who is that good that irrespective of whether it, you know, you've not been playing well and it's the 89th minute and this is your first opportunity of the game. Um, you need someone who's going to be ice cold in, in that situation. You need a Lionel you know, Messi, you need a Ronaldo. You think of, you know, you spoke about Manchester United, Ruud van Nistelrooy, be someone who is just going to score something out of nothing. His job was just pretty much to to score. Like Andy Kirk at Bradford City at the moment. Exactly. It's yeah. probably the other obvious. <laughs> the obvious yeah, I was about to say Kylian Mbappe, but you beat me to the, the elite forward there. But, you know, yeah, an Mbappe, a Benzema, those sorts of players um, who are currently playing, who are just absolutely elite finishers and just need kind of one opportunity. Again, that happened in El Clasico yesterday. Just first first proper counter-attacking move, Vinicius Junior to Karim Benzema, goal. I think you probably need good aerial players a lot of the time as well because you're going to be defending often a lot of crosses if you're under pressure and also set pieces. I think set pieces are just such a big part of football and they're almost outside the game in terms of the tactics, in terms of the strategies. It's almost like a game within a game. So if you can just be dominant in both boxes aerially, I think you've got... A, a good chance of uh, winning without playing well. And surely if we talk about elite finishes, then elite shot stoppers have to be a, a big part of this conversation for riding out those those tough moments. Yeah, definitely Courtois in the, in the Champions League final. I think you mentioned earlier, Liam was a good example. I, I think as well, just to finish, it's worth asking what happens if we reverse the phrase. Like if a side plays well but doesn't win, what is that a sign of? Mm. I mean, the XG kind of argument would suggest that is the sign of a good side. Brighton being right. probably the, the example yeah, of that I, in recent seasons. Straight away, what sprung to mind was probably a comfortable possession-based team that probably have more of the ball and potentially have a higher volume of shots, but who, for whatever reason, are not doing are not winning the battle in both boxes. I think it's amazing and I probably disagree with the idea that I think those teams get celebrated more than the teams that win and necessarily play badly so not many people seem to like Real Madrid Bright under Potter got an awful lot of um, support and I think praise for fair parts of um, yeah doing well in games but I just don't see how you can't enjoy teams that are winning games of football however they choose to go about winning it like that's that's their prerogative understanding that this is just building a prototype broad brush strokes we're probably looking at a team who tactically are not obsessed with a heavy possession-based style. So some of the teams that we've talked about, Real Madrid, Manchester United under Alex Ferguson, you know, teams who are happy soaking up pressure, fairly comfortable having periods without the ball and very dangerous and happy in moments of, of transition. Um, psychologically, I'm not sure if we've... Well, I'm not sure if you can ever really nail this down because who are we to really judge the psychological strength of, of players? But but broadly, of course, we're talking about a team that as a collective have a certain appetite for 
difficult periods for suffering to use the phrase that they use a lot in Spanish football um, of course uh, a team that has excellent finishers inside the opposition penalty box and ideally very good shot stopping goalkeepers as well a team ideally that can finish strongly maybe in games where the, the initial game plan plan A hasn't worked that well and the game's still tied after 70 minutes as a result but good off the bench options good substitutions from the manager just to make the last 20 minutes a little bit easier or to mix things up if necessary Arsenal this season have done that very well and it cannot hurt to be a strong set piece team big old positive set piece goal difference for again those situations where open play the dominance hasn't quite been realized and this is why i really enjoy having these conversations i think it's a difficult one to have i think that there's a, a lot to to discuss and i really enjoy your thoughts on the matter so thank you to michael to mark and to liam winning without playing well the sign of champions the sign of a good team it'd be great to hear your thoughts as well you can get in touch with us on twitter of course but also uh, you can be part of the community on the athletic app the podcast has its own page and each episode has its own comment section i'd love to see that filled with some thoughts on this i'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we haven't touched on haven't expanded on maybe some things that we said that you weren't so sure about or particularly agreed with so do get in touch i think these are the sorts of conversations that um, we love having so in that sense we do want to hear from you as well so please do uh, get in touch make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed and subscribe to the athletic today as well it's crunch time isn't it the last six weeks or so uh, of the european season so much good stuff on the athletic site theathletic.com forward slash tactics uh, is the place to go to sign up if you don't have a subscription currently you'll pay one pound a month for the first year of your subscription, theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Uh, good stuff. Thank you very much. And please do join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.